0: Welcome to the Birth Journeys Podcast. I'm your host, Kelly Hoff, BSN RN. I am a wife, a mother of two, and a nurse specializing in the care of women and newborns. In this podcast, we will share powerful journeys of birth givers with the goals of lifting the veil on the birth experience, healing through sharing, and beginning an open conversation to strengthen trust and promote transparency between birthing people and healthcare providers. Welcome to the Birth Journeys Podcast. I'm your host, Kelly Hoff, BSN RN. I am a wife, a mother of two, and a nurse specializing in the care of women and newborns. In this podcast, we will share powerful journeys of birth givers with the goals of lifting the veil on the birth experience, healing through sharing, and beginning an open conversation to strengthen trust and promote transparency between birthing people and healthcare providers.
1: Hello. Today I have with me Mike Goldstein. Mike is currently a fourth-year medical student in the Uniformed Services University School of Medicine going into obstetrics. He's here today to talk about hematologic changes of pregnancy. Mike, welcome. Thank you for joining me.
2: Hello. Thank you for having me again. Always happy to be here. Before we get started, I have to say my little disclaimer. Anything that I say is my own opinion or the opinion of the scientific community and does not in any way reflect the opinions of the Department of Defense, Department of the Navy, or the Uniformed Services University. I have to say that every time. So anyway, moving on. So we want to talk about changes in pregnancy, right?
1: Yeah, hematologic changes, what your blood
2: does. Not your blood does in pregnancy. (laughs) That's true. Well, I mean, with advancing technology, it could happen, I guess. I would love Um, to see that
1: happen.
2: I would not love to see that. I mean, I would love to see it happen for people who would want that to happen, but I would never do that because I've seen what it's like being pregnant. It's something that I would never do. I think if if it was like seahorses and men had to carry babies, our species probably would have died off. Yeah. So talking about changes during pregnancy, a lot of stuff happens during pregnancy, as anyone who's been pregnant can attest to. But we're going to focus primarily on what happens to your blood during pregnancy. And there's a lot of stuff that goes on there. And I think if we try to talk about everything that happens to the whole body during pregnancy, it it takes a little while. These are like whole lectures that we get, and there's tons of research on all of it. You can talk about what happens to the blood, what happens to the heart rate and all that stuff. So let's just start with the things that you can feel. There's a few things that are visible or you can feel them yourself and people might wonder what's it gonna feel like. We can start with blood pressure. So blood pressure follows a fairly predictable pattern for most people. During pregnancy, your blood pressure tends to drop pretty predictably for the first trimester, kind of into the second trimester, and then around 16 to 20 weeks, that's kind of when the the nadir is. So that's when it's the lowest it's gonna be usually then around the mid-third trimester, it starts to approach pre-pregnancy blood pressure values. So both your systolic blood pressure and your diastolic blood pressure are going to drop, which is why your whole blood pressure goes down. And anybody who's had low blood pressure before that can lead to feelings of sometimes lightheadedness when you stand up. And so there's a lot of biochemical reasons for why your blood pressure drops like this. I'm not going to get all into them because most people probably don't care. But suffice to say, there's estrogens and relaxins and lots of hormones that are released during pregnancy that cause other molecules to be released that are related to vasodilation and arteries relaxing a little bit. And that decreases your arterial blood pressure, which is what we measure as blood pressure. And so because of those hormones that happen during pregnancy, your blood pressure goes down and then it starts to go back up. And by the time you deliver, it's usually pretty much where it was before you were pregnant. And it can go up a little bit during labor and delivery because it's painful and stressful and Any kind of stresses and stuff like that will increase your systolic blood pressure. Now, I will say that there has been a couple of studies that have shown that in women who have pre-pregnancy BMIs of over 25, the blood pressure kind of just goes up during pregnancy. So this predictable drop and then rise pattern may not be applicable to every person. So just keep that in mind. If your BMI is over 25, you may not see that same drop, but you might, the research is still ongoing there. Okay. So that's your blood pressure. What other things can you feel related to the cardiovascular system? Uh, the The next one I like to talk about is heart rate. So heart rate increases in pregnancy pretty reliably. We talk about cardiac output, and that's how much blood your heart is pumping out. And we measure that in liters per minute. And that increases during pregnancy. Now, the two things that go into cardiac output are how much volume of blood your heart is pumping out And that's called your stroke volume. And then how many beats per minute your heart is beating. So there's heart rate and then there's blood volume. And these are the two things I like to talk about. Talk about heart rate first. That heart rate is literally just how many beats per minute your heart is squeezing because it's just a pump. This goes up during pregnancy and it starts right away. It starts to go up and then it kind of peaks into the third trimester, usually around like 32 to 36 weeks. And so a little bit of tachycardia, that's what we call a heart rate higher than 100, is very common in pregnancy. And so it's not uncommon for you to be just sitting down on your couch. And if you look at your Apple watch, your heart rate could be 105, 110. I wouldn't be concerned about that. That's pretty normal. And because of that, just a little bit of an aside, certain arrhythmias are more commonly discovered in pregnancy. But one thing that's really common in pregnancy is what we call palpitations. And a lot of people have felt those before. It's when you feel like your heart skips a beat because you have a higher blood volume, which I'm about to talk about, and your heart rate is a little bit increased you tend to have more ectopy, which is firings in your heart that are not on beat, and you feel those extra beats. And so palpitations, PVCs, BACs, those are not uncommon in pregnancy. And so I've seen a lot of patients who are like, oh, I'm feeling all these palpitations. I'm in my third trimester, uh, and I feel like my heart's skipping beats. That's really common. And almost most of the time, it's totally benign, totally normal. It's not a sign of anything more dangerous. There are cases where women who have a structural heart disease or some kind of underlying arrhythmia don't discover it until pregnancy because that stretching and faster beating of the heart makes it more likely for those arrhythmias to manifest. And so there are women who the first time they discover that they have an underlying arrhythmia, just an abnormal heart rhythm, is during pregnancy. So just to mention that as an aside, if you become pregnant and then you find out that you have an arrhythmia, pregnancy just kind of revealed it, but it was going to be there anyway. So that's heart rate. The other thing, which I kind of alluded to there, is stroke volume. And so we can talk about blood volume. So what happens to your blood volume? Anybody who's been pregnant knows that we track how much blood you have in your body. We call that hemoglobin or hematocrit. It's a, a measure of the amount of blood that's in the body indirectly. And anybody who's pregnant knows that one of the concerns is anemia. Well, what's interesting about pregnancy is that your blood volume actually increases during pregnancy, and so does the number of your red blood cells. The reason that there's kind of an anemia during pregnancy, as we call it a dilutional anemia. So the number of your red blood cells increases, usually by about like 25%. But the blood volume, you can simplify it as like the water in your blood increases by about 50%. So the amount of fluid in your blood increases significantly more than the number of your red blood cells that increase. And so you have what's called a dilutional anemia. So you actually have more red blood cells in pregnancy than you do when you're not pregnant. It's just that the volume of the fluid around those red blood cells is so much higher. It increases so much more that you functionally can become kind of anemic. So And there's reasons for that you don't super have to go into. It's all about perfusion and trying to make sure. It's basically just physiologic changes to make sure the uterus and the baby can get enough blood and nutrients and all that stuff. We talked about red blood cells. You have a lot more of those. You also have more white blood cells. It's not uncommon for for pregnant women to have what we call leukocytosis. So you you normally have a a certain amount of white blood cells that are there to fight infection. And when you get an infection or if you get stressed out or if there's any kind of stressors going on in your body, that number can go up. As you might imagine, pregnancy is a stressor in and of itself. Uh, And so for various reasons, the white blood cell count goes up. And so sometimes we see women come into the emergency room and they Get blood work and their white blood cell count is elevated, and have to remember they're pregnant. That doesn't necessarily mean they have an infection or anything else going on. It's just normal for pregnancy.
1: Yeah, it's always red if you're pregnant.
2: Yeah, it pops up red.
1: Fourteen thousand is considered normal in pregnancy, but twelve thousand is considered normal without being pregnant.
2: Yeah, and depending on the reference lab for what facility you're at, sometimes the upper limit of normal can be like we're kind of talking shop here. But some one hospital I was at, the upper limit of normal was like nine point five, which is to me, so low, because even for a normal person, I mean, if your white count is like 10 or 10 and a half, I mean, to me, that's normal. Most reference ranges I've seen have been either 11 or 12. You could have 14, 15. After you've delivered the baby, your white count can be over 20,000. And in a normal situation, you were not pregnant, you didn't have just have a baby, and you went to the emergency room and had a white count of 20,000, we'd be like, what is going on? You might have an infection or some kind of stressor or something going on, trauma, appendicitis, something. But in a woman who just delivered a baby, that's totally normal because your body just went through an extreme amount of stress. Those numbers are always interesting. And you know, there's lots of different things that are kind of normal during delivery that that outside of the, the labor and delivery scenario would be super scary. Other things we could talk about at other episodes like blood loss and stuff. And it's always a, it's so interesting to me. What else is in your blood? There's red blood cells, there's white blood cells, there's also platelets, and then there's clotting factors and kind of getting to the The point a little bit. So platelets, for anybody who doesn't remember, platelets are what makes that platelet plugged. So their job is to plug up any damage to the blood vessels, injuries. When you see a scab and stuff that platelets are part of that, they help activate the clotting cascade and they help do a lot of things too. And that I won't get into the clotting cascade mostly because I don't remember all of it, Uh but there's just a lot of clotting factors that contribute to the clotting cascade and some of them keep it in check. Some of them activate it. Some of them come from the blood vessels. Some of them come from platelets. Some of them are floating around in the blood and there's just a lot of things going on. So your platelets tend to decrease during pregnancy, but your clotting factors go up during pregnancy. So we we consider pregnancy to be what's called a hypercoagulable state. And so that's just a fancy science word that just means that the clotting factors in your blood, they're elevated in pregnancy. So there's more clotting factors, there's less of the anti-clotting factors or anticoagulant factors. And there's there's reasons for this. The reasons aren't totally elucidated, but one of the thoughts is that. Being hypercoagulable will help prevent postpartum hemorrhage, which is a life-threatening thing that can happen with pregnancy. And so by your body increasing the amount of clotting factors and decreasing the things that can cause those clots to break down, that's just a way for your body to prepare and say, okay, after this happened, we're going to have this really traumatic experience, and then we need to tighten it down and clot it up right away so that we don't bleed to death. So that's that's just one thought. But because of that, you are at a higher risk for things like DBT and what we call VTE, venous thromboembolism. The increase in your risk for DBT increases throughout pregnancy. And during pregnancy, uh, it's like 18 to 20 times higher than the normal baseline risk of DBT. And you're actually also at an increased risk after pregnancy. So for the month after you deliver, you're still at like a six or seven fold increase in the risk for DBT. So there are Women who develop blood clots after they've already delivered and have gone home. So we say hypercoagulability, it's a hypercoagulable state, but it is a real thing. And if you have a hypercoagulability condition, then your risk goes up even more. So one thing they say about birth control is that birth control does increase your risk of blood clots. And that is true. That's not a made up statistic. It does do that. And if you, there are certain risk factors and lifestyle things that can increase that risk even more. But what increases your risk of blood clot even more than birth control is being pregnant. So you're significantly at a higher risk of blood clots during pregnancy than you are on birth control. And so if you're worried about blood clots, birth control is a great way to prevent getting pregnant so that you can not have a blood clot. (laughs) Now, obviously, people with pre-existing hypercoagulable diseases, there's certain forms of birth control that are better because we don't want to increase their risk of blood clots for just so they don't get pregnant. But just comparing the two, you're at a much higher risk for blood clots in pregnancy. Like I said, clotting factors that go up, anticoagulant factors that go down, and then there's compliance in blood vessels that come from hormones and that causes venous stasis. If you've ever talked to somebody who's a nurse or who walks around and stands stands on their feet all day, you kind of get that blood pooling in in your legs uh, by the end of the day well that just kind of occurs naturally at the end of the first trimester during pregnancy so the combination of those things just increases your risk of a of a blood clot
1: do you want to talk about what the symptoms of a blood clot would be so that if someone is pregnant and listening or postpartum they know what to call their doctor about
2: yeah so there's kind of two things that we think about we think about deep vein thrombosis and then we think about like pulmonary embolism or pulmonary vte or something so dvt Tends to happen in the calves It can happen in other deep veins They can happen in your arms, but it's much more likely that they happen in your legs. Almost always it happens in one leg rather than two. And it's very uncommon for you to have bilateral DVTs, but it can happen. But the classic presentation for somebody with a DVT is somebody with one leg that's swollen greater than the other leg. So we call it unilateral leg swelling, calf swelling so your calf or your leg will swell up. And say you have a DT in your left leg. Your left leg will be noticeably swollen compared to your right leg. And kind of the more swollen it is, the more concerning it is. So there are some scoring systems we use, like Wells criteria and stuff. One of the things in there is, like, is the entire leg swollen or is it just part of the leg? And you get more points if it's the entire leg. So that's the thing that you'll notice the most. The other thing that you might notice is it can cause what we call like a cramping, tearing pain in your calf. And so it can feel like you have a really bad charlie horse or somebody's ripping the muscles in your calf. And that's a pretty classic sign for a DBT. And then they can also feel, the calf can feel kind of warm and there can some, be sometimes erythema or redness over the skin of the calf. So those are kind of your classic, what we learn in medical school. If you see those, then you should be thinking DBT. And some, sometimes you can have like a fever, you know, things like that. But the other thing is that some people with DBTs, they, don't have any symptoms at all. So it's the classic thing, if you see any of those, you should definitely go talk to your doctor. But there are, not to be scary or anything, but there are women who have DBTs and they just don't have any symptoms at all and they get found out for other reasons. But if you have, if your one leg is swollen greater than your right, if you notice any redness or warmth over your calf, your calf feels like you have a bad Charlie horse or anything like that and it doesn't go away after a couple of minutes, and it seems to be kind of persisting, especially if you have any of those combined, then you should definitely talk to your doctor because that's a sign of a DVT. Now, when we think about pulmonary embolism, which is kind of like the end stage of a DVT, which is basically a piece of the DVT breaks off and goes to your lungs, that's when we talk about pulmonary embolism or BTE. The symptoms of that tend to be more symptomatic. Things that you can feel are tachycardia, so your heart rate increasing. That's just because you're trying to get oxygen. Basically what happens is the blood clot goes into the vessels in your lungs and it prevents you from getting oxygenated and it prevents the blood flowing through the lungs the way that it's supposed to. And so your heart rate will go up because you're trying to get more oxygen molecules to your tissues. And then a kind of classic presentation is high heart rate, cough. So people will report that they have a cough, chest pain that is we call pleuritic. So it hurts more when you breathe in than when you're not breathing. And a lot of times the chest pain tends to be kind of localized. So people will say, oh, it hurts like right here on my chest. And they'll point to be like five by five centimeter spot at the bottom of their chest or on the side of their chest or something. And they'll say it hurts right there, especially when I take a deep breath. And then they have a kind of cough, maybe like a low grade fever. Those are pretty typical symptoms for a pulmonary embolism. And so if you're pregnant and you suddenly develop chest pain and chest, develop chest pain at all, and it's not like quick, brief pain that feels very musculoskeletal, like you just pick something up and then your, your muscle hurt and then it went away. But if you have like actual chest pain inside your chest, it's definitely something you should go get seen for anyway. But if you develop like a chest pain in one part of your chest and it hurts more when you breathe in, and those are signs of a pulmonary embolism. Now, I'm not saying that this is something you need to worry about. The risk of this is definitely significantly higher than women who are not pregnant, but most women don't develop DBTs and most women don't pulmonary embolisms during pregnancy. So it's just that the risk is relatively higher than when you're not pregnant. And there are ways to help prevent this. So if you've had a pulmonary embolism or if you've had a DVT in the past, even if it wasn't during pregnancy, you should definitely tell this to your doctor when you go to those initial appointments because there are medications that can be given during pregnancy to help prevent another one. If you're at greater risk of that because of certain conditions you have or you had a a dbt in the past definitely bring that up because yeah it's a pain to to take lovenox for your whole pregnancy but it's better than getting a a dbt
1: (laughs) i think that about covers it it's always funny when i listen to you because there's always these memories that are unlocked like you said ectopy and i was like i have not heard that word in a long time (laughs) i started cracking up it's all in there i just can't make it come out
2: then like all this time learning these this language and then we have we have to learn then how to translate it back into english when we talk to people so you know we we learn all of these fancy doctor words and then you can't use any of them because nobody knows what they mean. So, right. you know, when we talk to each other, we can say, oh yeah, blah, 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 blah. But then you have to like translate it into English when you're having a regular conversation. So
1: yeah, um, you're good at translating it.
2: If I was better at it, I wouldn't use the fancy term in the first place because I would just speak in like plain <laughs> okay. English, but say one of the $10 words and then I'll be like, oh, I have to, to speak in regular English, not this foreign language. <laughs> I think it's good to like throw the terms in there sometimes because you sound people smart. might hear yeah. them <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that too. But you know, I was thinking more of along the lines of them like floating around on Google or oh, hear, yeah, overhearing them, you know, or hearing them at the doctor's office and being like ectopy. What is ectopy? Sounds mm-hmm. like super scary or hypercoagulability. That's pregnancy is a hypercoagulable state. I'm going to get like a blood clot. You know?
1: Yeah. Well, Mike, thank you so much. It's always a pleasure. I always learn a lot (laughs) or relearn, open up those areas of my brain, dust them off, get the cobwebs out.
0: To help more moms find this podcast, please be sure to subscribe and leave a review to tell me what you think. To find more information about guests from each episode, please see the show notes at birthjourneyspodcast.buzzsprout.com. There you can also learn how to follow me on Facebook and Instagram. Thank you for listening. I'm honored to be a part of your birth journey. Thank you so much for tuning into my podcast. If you enjoyed what you heard, make sure you hit that subscribe button so you don't miss out on future episodes. Don't forget to share the podcast with a friend who can benefit from the valuable insights that we share here. And if you could take a moment to leave a five star rating and review, it would mean the world to me. If you're ready to work one on one with me to embark on a transformational journey towards a confident and empowered hospital birth experience, Go to kellyhoff.com backslash empowered and enroll in my empowered hospital birth coaching program. Together, we'll create a roadmap to a birth experience that you'll cherish forever. That's K-E-L-L-Y-H-O-F dot com backslash empowered. Let's make your birth experience extraordinary.